0: everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today is episode 255 for January 17th, 2022. And we've got another news show for you this week because we've got uh, probably upcoming in the next two weeks, two interviews in a row to actually nicely neatly bookend data privacy week, which starts next week. And because of that, they will both be kind of privacy focused interviews. And I've got two really cool people on tap. And uh, hopefully it all comes together, fingers crossed, and we'll have uh, those two interviews back to back. The listener survey results are coming in, and I've been reading them as they've been coming. They've been really good feedback. I very much appreciate that. Thank you so much for doing that, but we still got time to do more, and I'm looking for more people to respond, and there's an incentive to do so. I'll talk more about that after the news. So I'm already getting feedback, and I'm actually already going to be implementing some of the some of the things I'm hearing from you guys. Some of these I'll explicitly tell you about. Some of these things you may or may not notice a change. But one of the things I'm definitely going to try to do going forward and, uh, and by the way, I, I completely, completely accept I cannot please everybody. So, uh, nevertheless, I still want your feedback and I'm getting feedback that would be impossible to satisfy. Some people want this, some people want that, and they're not the same thing, but you know, I'd still, that really helps me to know what you guys think. And one of the things I'm, I'm definitely going to do going forward, and I've tried this in the past and I've gotten a little loose is I'm going to really try to keep the podcast much closer to an hour every week. Like last week, I, I fully admit, I kind of went long. Uh, I didn't actually have that many stories, but I talked about them a lot, and, I, and my tips of the week were kind of long. So the thing is, I get I get through all that stuff, and I realize how much material I have. And I'm like, man, I don't I just did all that. I hate to throw it out, but I think what I'll do instead, uh, especially now that I've got the Patreon thing going, is what I'll do is if I if I really do run long and I and I just go way over time, what I'll probably do is I'll try to take one or two stories out, maybe, and then I'll make that bonus content for my patrons because uh, I really want to keep this to a really close to an hour. I'm not going to try to make it exactly an hour. You know, that's just too difficult. And there, you know, there are going to be some weeks when I just got to cover stuff and it's going to run a little bit long, but I, I'm really going to do my best to keep it much closer to an hour than I normally do. So with that in mind, I only have a few stories this week, and I'm going to start with a brief uh, article from Bruce Schneier, uh, one of his blog articles. Uh, he's always kind of tersed to the point Uh, about a recent kind of um, discovery, uh, about some things that went down with the Anom smartphone app that was used by a lot of criminals, and it turns out it was just a big sting operation, but there's some new details that have come out of that that are interesting. Disappointing, but interesting. Also, big news this week is that Russia, apparently at the direction of the United States, has taken down the Revil Ransomware Gang. Also, I'm going to talk about a significant technical victory regarding the support or lack thereof for 2G cellular, which is relevant because it's often used uh, in cell site simulators or stingrays to track people. I'm going to talk about a class action lawsuit in Illinois about Subaru and how its driver focus program, which is technically interesting, which actually appears to be breaking the Illinois biometric privacy law. I'm going to talk about a new bill in front of the U.S. Congress with an interesting title, which they all have. About terms of service and why it's an interesting idea, but maybe not great in implementation. And before I get into my tips of the week, multiple tips this week, uh, in honor of Data Privacy Week, which starts next Monday, I'm going to read an article from CPO Magazine about a recent study uh, about people's attitudes toward privacy, with some interesting statistics about you know kind of where we are right now. Now there there have been a couple articles lately about Apple's AirTags. We covered this a couple months ago and you know i've seen several kind of clickbaity titles about how airtags are being used to stalk people and they're being used to steal cars in canada i don't know if you saw any of those uh, but i i'm not going to read any, any of those articles basically it comes down to this they're really good tracking devices mostly because they're all tied to apple's ecosystem all of apple devices now support the tracking of these little tags are about the size of a quarter and you can put them in anything and use it to track something you know you, your laptop or your purse or whatever. And they're just really good at it. We've had tracking devices for a long time. Tile is probably the biggest maker of these things. These things have existed, but they just haven't been nearly as good. So like anything, it's just a tool and it can be abused. Apple actually has really tried very hard to address the privacy issues with these, and they're still working to iron out some of the kinks. For instance, to really track these things, you kind of have to have an Apple device, which means that all the people out there with Android devices are kind of out of luck. You know, if, if someone tried to sneak a, an air tag on them to stalk them, well, they came out with an Android app, which wasn't that great. And, but this Android app that Apple provided will help you find if someone's, you know, stuck a tag on you somewhere. There's actually better ones out there than the one Apple created, but you know, Apple, it just shows Apple is trying to address some of these privacy things. So anyway, I I don't want to minimize it. I mean, obviously these can be used for evil, but then a lot of technology can be used for evil. And so we just, we just rely on the manufacturers to do everything with their power, to you know to minimize the threats and you know if, honestly if it becomes there are some things that are just too good and if they're really th- too good then they need to be hampered or toggled or discontinued we'll see if it gets to that point but i just wanted to kind of call that out because there have been several articles about this which you may have seen but i'm not going to delve into it any more than that for at least for now all right enough of that let's actually get to the news <laughs> Right, first up, there's a blog article from Bruce Schneier. He has a nice little blog. It doesn't blog a lot, and when he does, it's usually something important, and very. he's very pithy, very terse, and usually expurgates just the key parts of the article, which is perfect. So anyway, I'm just going to read from this, which also quotes uh, another article. And this blog is entitled, Using Foreign Nationals to Bypass U.S. Surveillance Restrictions. And so this is Bruce, he says, remember when the U.S. and Australian police surreptitiously owned and operated the encrypted cell phone app Anom, and that's spelled A-N-O-M, they arrested 800 people in 2021 based on that operation. New documents received by Motherboard show that over 100 of those phones were shipped to users in the U.S., far more than previously believed. What's most interesting to me about this new information is how the U.S. used the Australians to get around domestic spying laws. And this is a quote from that Motherboard article that he referenced. It says... For legal reasons, the FBI did not monitor outgoing messages from Anom devices determined to be inside the U.S. Instead, the Australian Federal Police, or the AFP, monitored them on behalf of the FBI, according to previously published court records. In those court records, unsealed shortly before the announcement of the Anom operation, FBI Special Agent Nicholas Chavirin, I hope I pronounced that right, wrote that the FBI received Anom user data three times a week, which contained the messages of all the users of Anom, with some exceptions including, quote, the messages of approximately 15 Anom users in the U.S. sent to any other Anom device, unquote. Stuart Baker, partner at Steptoe and Johnson LLP, and Bryce Clem, associate editor of Lawfare, previously wrote that, quote, the Threat to Life standard echoes the provision of U.S. law that allows communication providers to share user data with law enforcement without legal process under Section uh, 18 of blah, blah, blah. Whether the AFP was relying on this provision of U.S. law or a more general moral imperative to take action to prevent imminent threats is not clear, unquote. That section of the law discusses the voluntary disclosure of customer communications or records. That is, the company gave it up without legal legal process, without a warrant or whatever. When asked about the practice of Australian law enforcement monitoring devices inside the U.S. on behalf of the FBI, Senator Ron Wyden told Motherboard in a statement, quote, Multiple intelligence community officials have confirmed to me in writing that intelligence agencies cannot ask foreign partners to conduct surveillance that the U.S. would be legally prohibited from doing itself. The FBI should follow this same standard. Allegations that the FBI outsourced warrantless surveillance of Americans to a foreign government raise troubling questions about the Justice Department's oversight of these practices, unquote. And then one final comment here from Bruce, he says, I and others have long suspected that the NSA uses foreign nationals to get around restrictions that prevent it from spying on Americans. It is interesting to see the FBI using the same trick. Yeah, so, you know, I've mentioned this or at least speculated about this several times on the show. And I'm, you know, I I don't know that it happens. Obviously, I'm not a spook. Uh, I don't work for these agencies. But I have no doubt that this actually happens. I can't spy on my own people because legally I'm not allowed to, but you know, hey, we're friends. You're not us. You can spy on my people. And then you can tell me that information. I have no doubt that that actually happens. And this is the case where apparently the FBI was doing just that. All right, moving on a positive article, a little puzzling, but this is from the verge. And this is about Russia taking down the remnants of the revil hacker group, which operates out of Russia. And this again, from the verge, it says, Russia's domestic security service, the FSB, has arrested numerous members of the Reval Hacking Group at the request of the U.S. government, the FSB said on Friday. The move, which marks an unusual degree of cooperation between Russia and U.S. agencies, comes amid increasingly aggressive Russian military activity on the Ukrainian border and tense diplomacy as the United States attempts to prevent armed conflict. Reporting by the Russian Interfax news agency claimed that the FSB seized 426 million rubles or about $5.6 million in a raid against 14 members of the group, along with more than $600,000 worth of cryptocurrency and 20 luxury cars. The FSB told Interfax that it was acting at the request of U.S. authorities and had informed them of the results of the operation. The operation effectively dismantled Reval as an entity, the the FSB said. The Biden administration has long called on Russia to do more to crack down on ransomware gangs operating within the country, though with limited success until now. Analysts have tied Russian groups to extensive ransomware operations in Europe and the U.S., often without interference from local law enforcement. With no extradition treaty in place, the Russian government has been accused of sheltering cybercriminals provided they do not attack domestic targets. Domestic to Russia, that is. U.S. agencies have intensified their pursuit of Revil after the FBI linked it to the hack that shut down the Colonial Pipeline in May of 2021. Revil was also behind the cyberattack against meat supplier JBS, also in May of 2021, which shut down the company's meat processing plants across the U.S. One alleged member of Revol was arrested by Polish authorities in November of 2021 after being indicted by the U.S. According to reporting in Reuters, a source close to the case said that the FSB would not hand over Revol group members with Russian citizenship to the United States after the latest arrests. Okay, so, I mean, I guess that's a good thing, right? I mean, its I can't see how it's a bad thing. It's just a weird thing. I know, Russia has not cooperated with us on this stuff really at all to date. So I'm not sure why they did here. But, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, I guess. All right, next up, a short article here from the EFF about a welcome change in Android that allows people to disable 2G. And you might think, why is that such a big deal? Well, it turns out that cell site simulators, often colloquially known as stingrays, because I think that was one of the brand names of these things, are used to track individuals and sometimes actually peek into their communications. And they do this by simulating a valid cell tower. So they might go to an airport where they think that somebody they want to spy on is about to get off a plane, and they'll throw up on these fake cell towers, and they'll try to get that person's cell phone to connect to their fake cell tower, so that they can, first of all, just know where they are. Uh, and second, if they're lucky, actually break into the communications, perhaps like the text messages, or maybe even the phone calls. Anyway, we talked uh, with Cooper Quinton from the EFF about this last summer, and a pair of interviews that I called hunting for stingrays. And there's a link in the show notes if you want to go back and check that out if you missed it. Anyway, this article will talk about what it really means, and uh, so let me, let me just read it. Last year, Google quietly pushed a new feature to its Android operating system, allowing users to optionally disable 2G at the modem level in their phones. This is a fantastic feature that will provide some protection from cell site simulators and invasive police surveillance technology employed throughout the country. We applaud Google for implementing this much-needed feature. Now Apple needs to implement this feature as well for the safety of their customers. So what is 2G and why is it vulnerable? 2G is the second generation of mobile communications created in 1991. It's an old technology from a time when standards bodies did not account for certain risk scenarios, such as rogue cell towers and the need for strong encryption. As years have gone by, many vulnerabilities have been discovered in 2G. There are two main problems with 2G. First, it uses weak encryption between the tower and the device that can be cracked in real time by an attacker to intercept calls or text messages. In fact, the attacker can do this passively without ever transmitting a single packet. The second problem with 2G is that that there's no authentication of the tower to the phone, which means that anyone can seamlessly impersonate a real 2G tower, and a phone using the 2G protocol will never be the wiser. Cell site simulators sometimes work this way. They can exploit security flaws in 2G in order to intercept your communications. Even though many of the security flaws in 2G have been fixed in 4G, more advanced cell site simulators can downgrade your connection to 2G, making your phone susceptible to the above attacks. This makes every user vulnerable, from journalists and activists, to medical professionals, government officials, and even law enforcement. So what can you do to protect yourself? If you have a newer Android phone, such as a Pixel or a newer Samsung phone, you can disable 2G right now by going to Settings, Network & Internet, Sims, that's S-I-M-S, Allow 2G and turning that setting off. If you have an older Android phone, these steps may or may not work. Unfortunately, due to limitations of old hardware, Google has only been able to implement this feature on newer phones. If you have a newer Samsung smartphone, you may also be able to shut off 2G support the same way. Unfortunately, this is not supported on all networks or all Samsung phones. For iPhone owners, unfortunately, Apple does not support this feature, but you can tweet at them to demand it. And yes, Apple needs to get on the stick here. They they need to be offering this same thing. So again, just to summarize, this is basically really old cell phone technology. It's been around a really long time, and it's just not that secure. And it's certainly not authenticated. That is, it's really easy for somebody to set up a fake cell tower and your phone would connect to that cell tower because there's no handshaking going on. There's no challenge response. There's no authentication happening between your phone and that tower saying, you know, making sure that that's a valid cell phone tower run by an actual cellular service provider. And this allows law enforcement, and this is not theoretical. They have done this many times. It's been well-documented around protests and things like that, where law enforcement agencies have set up these fake cell towers to try to get information on the people at these protests, including perhaps communications. So when you look down at your cell phone and up in the corner somewhere where it says 4G or 5G or LTE or whatever it says, if you notice that it says 2G, what that means is that your phone, for some reason, has looked at all the available options nearby and said, that's the one I want. I'm going to connect to 2G. Now you would hope that Modern phones would do everything in their power to avoid that. But if it's the only option, or maybe if it's the strongest signal, it may still do so. And that's what these cell site simulators, these stingrays, are counting on. So, having the ability to shut that off, this really old technology that you really shouldn't find anywhere unless you're really traveling to like some far flung places, is a welcome option to have. And Apple absolutely needs to follow suit with this on their iPhone. All right, next up in the uh, realm of privacy, there is a new lawsuit in Illinois against Subaru, invoking uh, their biometric privacy law. So this is actually from the Cook County record uh, in Illinois. It says a new class action lawsuit has accused Automaker Subaru of illegally scanning the faces of drivers in Illinois when the cars deploy the company's driver-focus distracted driving crash prevention system, allegedly in violation of Illinois' biometric privacy law. The complaint focuses on Subaru's use of its driver-focus system in certain vehicles made by Subaru. These include the 2019 to 2022 Subaru Forester, the 2020 through 2022 Subaru Outback, and the 2020 through 2022 Subaru Legacy. Ooh. That's a tongue twister. According to the lawsuit, the driver focus system uses a near-infrared camera to monitor the driver's face and eyes to ensure the driver is paying attention to the road. The system will then, quote, alert the driver with either a visual warning on the vehicle's display system or audible warnings or both, unquote, should it determine that the driver is distracted or drowsy. The system is capable of recognizing the faces of up to five registered drivers, according to the complaint, allowing it to adjust various settings in the car to automatically suit the driver's preset preferences. To accomplish these comfort and crash prevention goals, the complaint says, the driver focus system stores driver's facial geometry and retina iris scans on an onboard computer. That computer is, in turn, allegedly accessible through Subaru's Starlink system, which Subaru can use to collect and access data about the vehicle and the driver. According to the complaint, that data is, quote, automatically retrieved, recorded, and transmitted to Subaru, unquote. The complaint asserts this data collection and transmission violates the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, because Subaru scans drivers' faces and eyes and collects and transmits that information without first securing written permission from the drivers or without supplying drivers with written notices concerning why the data is being collected and how their biometric identifying data will be used, stored, shared, and ultimately destroyed. The BIPA law has been used by a growing number of plaintiffs' attorneys to launch potentially massive class-action lawsuits against businesses of all types and sizes operating in Illinois since 2015. The bulk of such lawsuits have, to date, targeted employers, who may require workers to scan their fingerprints or other biometric identifier to verify their identity when punching the clock at work or when accessing secure areas in a workplace. However, many of the lawsuits have also taken aim at big tech companies, including Facebook and Google, and at various other companies that use some form of facial recognition technology in their overall products or as part of a consumer marketing campaign. All right, so mainly I bring this up just to kind of show the interplay between, you know, state level privacy laws and these interesting, perhaps useful features being rolled out based on biometric information by tech companies, in this case, a car company. Now, I, you know, I think it's actually quite interesting and probably, you know, very helpful to have a system, you know, monitoring the drivers to make sure that they're not falling asleep. I think that's probably a very good thing, but (laughs) when you're doing these things, you've got to be careful about what kind of data you collect, how you store it, where you put it, you know, who you share it with and so on. For instance, if all this data stayed on the vehicle, and was never transmitted to Subaru, and maybe furthermore, was it even accessible to Subaru? Because why does it? Why does Subaru need that information? Just keep it in the car. All, the, only, the only device that needs to act on that information is the vehicle. You know, I go down and sit in my car. It recognizes my face. Says, "Oh, good. Hey, that's Carrie. Let's let's change the seat. Let's change the mirrors. Uh, let's change the environment settings. His favorite temperature. Maybe put on his favorite radio station." Uh, and then, you know, while Carrie's driving. We're going to keep an eye on him and make sure that he's not being distracted. Maybe he's looking at his phone uh, when he shouldn't be. Maybe it looks like he's nodding off. And then I'm going to play a loud noise or something to get his attention and, you know, prevent him from crashing. That's great. But why why on earth would that information ever need to be uploaded through the cellular link built into the car, which we've talked about several times in this show, to Subaru for any reason whatsoever? This is what privacy by design is all about. Minimizing the data that's collected and, you know, limiting its scope uh, and who has access to it. uh, There's just, there's just no need for that. So, you know, this is where privacy laws kick in and, you know, put some guardrails on these things. All right, let's move on. Next up is a story about uh, a new bill in front of the U.S. Congress, Uh, you know, and there's lots of these things. (laughs) Honestly, this bill probably doesn't have much chance of passing, but with data privacy week coming and me about to get into some privacy tips, kind of had a, hankering for some privacy-related stories. So I'll read this, and this article actually talks about a lot of the drawbacks and limitations for things like this. But nevertheless, um, it's an opportunity to discuss this and see that our government is at least trying to do something. All right, this is from Gizmodo. There's a reason that nobody reads the little terms of service tabs tucked away at the bottom of any website. They're too long, too full of jargon, and too impenetrable for anyone without a law degree to bother trying to understand. Now a bipartisan trio of lawmakers wants to change that. U.S. representative and they give their representatives, I'm just going to skip that, but they introduced a bill which would mandate that major businesses create a simple and skimmable summary of their terms of service pages designed to be read by regular people instead of by entire legal teams. They're calling it, and get this, Terms of Service Labeling, Design, and Readability Act, or the TLDR Act for short. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with TLDR, it's shorthand for too long, didn't read. So they've made their build that wants to improve that situation also become a retronym for TLDR. Specifically, TLDR would require these summaries to outline the type of consumer data being collected on a given site and details about whether the data is actually necessary to collect in the first place. Companies will also be asked to draw out a graphic diagram to show how their data is being shared with specific third parties and any legal liabilities for the person using that site. On top of all that, the sites will be required to let users know how they can delete their personal data being collected by the site and give instructions on how to do so. Companies will also have to list any reported data breaches that the site has experienced over the past three years and publish a brief overview of any recent changes to the terms of service. Basically, this proposed short and simple version of a site's TOS, or Terms of Service, might not be as long as the indecipherable legalese you'd need to read through now, but don't expect it to be short. In order to enforce this mandate, companies should also be required to write these not-so-short summaries in machine-readable text so that, quote, advocates and browser extension developers, unquote, and presumably anyone else, could analyze differences between different companies' terms at scale. And if a site is caught pulling something sneaky with its summary, the bill gives permission to the Federal Trade Commission to issue fines under its current unfair or deceptive acts or practices rules. State AGs, or attorneys general, could also bring their own actions on behalf of at least 1,000 affected residents in their state. Like most bills, TLDR is something that sounds good in theory, but will likely be a complete mess in practice. Website terms of service might be impossible to read, but privacy policies are just as bad and typically discuss more details about your data and how it's handled than any terms of service. But privacy policies aren't tackled in this build, and neither are the different flavors of quote-unquote anonymous data that these companies can freely collect, even though that data is usually just as sensitive as something like your address or phone number. So the TLDR of TLDR? It's not great. It only tackles a narrow slice of the oodles of data sites collect on you across the web and gives them plenty of outs to keep on mining that data against your will. And even if this bill does go ahead in Congress, which, let's be real, it likely won't, it's going to butt up against the current patchwork of technical privacy laws that vary state by state. It's also going to butt up against an FTC, or Federal Trade Commission, that's already overwhelmed with its current duties and has just lost some of the key technologists that would make this kind of oversight possible. Thankfully, even if Congress won't give us the TOS summaries we deserve, there's already one website that does pretty much everything this bill aims to. And by the way, that site, which is linked to, and you can't see that, but it's called Terms of Service Didn't Read. Uh, And it's really easy to remember if you remember that name, because it's just TOSDR.org. And there are actually some other sites trying to do similar things. Uh, But that's a great website to bookmark and check out. But I wanted to kind of circle back to something here. So one of the things this article mentioned was having these Privacy policies and terms of service things be machine readable, and standardized. Really, is kind of what that implies, and and I think that would be a powerful thing. And I think transparency and awareness is really the first step, which I've said many times. So if we could at least require that these things be laid out in a common sense, standardized way, honestly, even if it's full of legalese if it's something that a computer can easily find on your website, because it's always in the same place, that the file's named the same way, the file's always in the same format, and there's agreed upon terms and jargon so that when I say there's end end encryption, we all agree on what that actually means. When I say data is collected and shared, we agree on what that means. When I say that your data is sold, we agree on what that means. It all comes down to having these kind of standards and transparency. And so that even if these things are, you know, arcane and hard to Go through if they're standardized to the point where some independent third party can write tools that can go read all of these things parse through them and generate reports that is still very helpful They can do that work for us, but we have to kind of help them get to the point where tools can be written and this goes right back to the things that common sense media have been trying to do with their kids' privacy report they're trying to you know ingest all of these privacy policies and have tools that will go through and pick them apart and try to figure out, find the keywords that help them understand what's going on here. And if we could standardize these things, that would make the job of companies like Common Sense Media and any other rights group that's looking to monitor privacy much, much, much easier. So anyway, I'm not sure if we'll ever get to the point where these things are directly digestible by humans. I do like Apple's, you know, kind of nutrition label approach, Uh, you know, certainly making these things simpler. I almost said dumbing them down, but that's not really what we're doing here. Just making them simpler, making them more comprehensible to the average human and standardizing them in such a way that you can quickly compare this to that is important. So I applaud the concept here. I don't know if this particular bill is the way to do it, but we do need something like this, I think. And it would be a good first start. If we're not going to prohibit this sort of stuff directly uh, and outright, I think we at least need to make sure that as consumers and as citizens, we have a way to better understand what's going on and be able to see how these policies change over time within a given company or for a given product and be able to meaningfully compare them uh, across companies and products. All right, last story for for the day, and then we're going to get into my multiple tips of the week uh, for Data Privacy Week next week. And this one is from CPO Magazine, and it's about a study just produced by the Ponemon Institute, I'm hoping I'm getting that right. It looks like Pokemon actually wakes up with an N. And there's there's gonna be a lot of stats in here. I'm gonna throw a lot of percentages <laughs> at you as I read this. You know, as as you might expect when taking a poll, there's gonna be a lot of results and they're gonna be expressed in percentage format. So forgive me ahead of time. I will apologize ahead of time. I'm gonna be quoting lots of per- percentages at you as we read through this article. But I think it's, you know, it's a it's a snapshot of the state of privacy or what people kind of think about privacy today and that is going to be a good framework, a good foundation actually leading, in, leading into the interviews I've got coming up for the next two weeks. So I wanted to kind of read from this study. It's not, it's not too long. And it says the following. A new study from the Ponemon Institute indicates that people are increasingly aware of online consumer privacy issues, but also overwhelmingly feel they do not have the tools to protect themselves and are looking to government to intervene. The study, entitled Privacy and Security in a Digital World, And there's, by the way, a link right there. So if you go to this article from the show notes, you can click on that full report if you want to see it. Asked a diverse sample of 650 adults from across the United States about their sentiments towards various aspects of big tech platforms. Consumers indicated that their general trust in online services has dropped in recent years, with particularly sharp increase in concerns about search engines and social media platforms. Very few trust websites in general with collection and sharing of personal information, but only about half seem to be fully aware of the personal protection options that are available to them. The lead item in the report is the level of concern about consumer privacy when using devices and online services in general. 86% of respondents are concerned about data privacy when using free online services. That number only drops to 69% when using devices and 66% when shopping online or using paid services, such as rideshare or food delivery. The biggest consumer privacy concerns are directed at social media and search engines. Social media sites are the least trusted type of website among respondents, uh, with 61% indicating distrust. The next closest category is online shopping sites at 52%. When asked if they believe sites are sharing and selling personal data with third parties, 92% believe that search engines were doing so. 78% are convinced that social media sites are selling personal data. In terms of specific consequences of data sharing, respondents were most commonly worried about violation or loss of civil liberties, at 56%, or theft of identity or financial information as a result of a data breach, at 54%. Relatively few, or 25%, report being concerned about marketing abuses, but there is nevertheless strong sentiment against the use of personal information for targeted marketing. 73% want the ability to opt out of receiving ads connected to specific topics. And 68% do not want online services to be able to serve ads based on the contents of their communications. 64% do not want to be profiled unless they grant permission. Additionally, 64% feel that targeted ads based on searches or publicly available information are quote-unquote creepy. In spite of these strong sentiments in favor of consumer privacy, end users are often not aware of the personal protection measures that are already available to them. Consumers have a tendency to believe that their personal data is always being collected when they are online. 96% believe that devices collect email addresses and 90% believe that browser and search histories are recorded. And 78% believe devices collect payment information and photos. 50% feel that they never have control over personal data. And 54% say they do not attempt to limit the amount of data collected on them. 45% are not aware of device privacy controls. Of those that are aware, only 60% make use of them on computers and 50% on, 56% on smartphones. Only 19% of respondents say they actively try to limit information sharing and maintain consumer privacy across all sites and devices that they use. 27% say they do so selectively. Only 5% believe there are no consumer privacy protections in place whatsoever, but 73% believe that it is not possible to disable tracking activities. Although consumers clearly need more education about available privacy protections, use of these measures is nevertheless up overall from previous years. The research points to small increases in the use of device data sharing settings and authentication controls. Among specific consumer privacy protections available, end users are most aware of HTTPS connections at 69%. Only 47% expect websites to have a privacy policy, and only 45% expect their web browsers to have built-in safeguards. Only 17% believe that websites are required to limit the collection and sharing of personal information. Given the overall low awareness of personal protection measures, it's not surprising that a majority of consumers, 60%, see government involvement as the answer. 34% want strong government oversight as the sole solution, while 26% would like to see a mix of government intervention and industry self-regulation. In spite of the general lack of awareness of existing privacy protection measures, 45% say they should personally be most accountable for protection of their personal information. 42% would like to have a free online tool that helps protect their privacy, and 31% would be willing to pay for one. Okay, so again, I apologize. That was a lot of numbers thrown at you. But yeah, it seems like the key takeaways here are pretty much what you know the article outlined is that people are definitely aware of it. People are definitely concerned about it. They seem to be getting more so over time. They're worried about a lot of the right things, but they seem to think, as a lot of corporations like to make us think, that it's really their own responsibility to protect themselves. And this honestly is one of the most insidious fallacies i think being promoted by big companies like you know google and facebook is you know you've had the power all along we've given you all these wonderful methods to protect your data you you simply must choose to use them when in reality those things are often very hard to find they're very confusing they're using all sorts of dark patterns and euphemisms to try to prevent you from choosing the options that are really best for you and they change all the time like I almost had an article today about a new Facebook privacy dashboard. Well, they've, they've been doing that kind of thing forever. And honestly, the problem is they just keep moving stuff around. And this article also just highlights the tyranny of the default, which is, you know, whatever, whatever the default settings are are likely not to change because first of all, people often don't know that they're there to change. And even if they do, they've got to find them. And then when they do, they often don't know how to change them or don't get around to doing it. So these are false choices that are being offered. And, I think it's you know time we stop blaming the victims here, but that said, I do not want you to be victims, so that leads to our multiple tips of the week, and so next week is data privacy week and until this year, it was just a data privacy day every day in January, i think twenty eighth or something like that uh, so they have extended it. It is now a full data privacy week uh Monday through Friday anyway. I, you know, practically speaking, <laughs> I'm not sure what difference that really makes, but you know, hey, it's, it's bigger. It's more. It's, it's, it's four louder or whatever, right? So in that spirit, in that vein, the, this is always the time of year when I try to circle back and just touch on some of the top tips and highlights for protecting your privacy. And to that end, I've got a checklist, a privacy checklist that I maintain and update at least once a year, uh, that you can go to on my website right now, firewalls don't stop dragons. And if you search on privacy checklist, it'll come right up instead of updating, you know, that article and reprinting it basically every year, what I've basically been doing is printing a short article with a couple, you know, interesting, maybe currently relevant tips and then pointing back to the single checklist, which I just keep up to date. But what I want to do today for the tips of the week is I want to kind of run through some of the top ones and talk about them a little bit and update our notions of why they are important. So let me just rattle off some of my top privacy tips. First of all, use a privacy-respecting web browser. So much of what we do today is the internet is all through a web browser. That's how we access the internet. So it's crucial for that tool that we use to respect our privacy and to give us options to restrict tracking on the web. And uh, while Brave certainly has gotten a lot of news and it's very interesting, uh, I still prefer Firefox for one thing, Brave is based on the Chromium engine, and Chromium is uh, from Google, which is not to say that the Chromium engine, like the core heart of the of the browser that is behind Google Chrome and Opera and Brave and Vivaldi and others and Edge, uh, you know, they all have the same open source core that, that Google makes called Chromium. It's, it's not to say that, you know, that that itself is necessarily bad or privacy invasive. I think most of that actually comes with from the, the browser itself that's kind of built around that engine. But... As we heard last week, Google is going to be adopting this Manifest V3 specification, and that is going to severely limit what third-party plugins for that browser, any Chromium-based browser, can do to protect you against tracking. And also, it's just kind of a monoculture. I mean, at the end of the day, all these browsers are all based on the same code. There's economies of scale, obviously, for that. But when that code is written by somebody whose business model is advertising... It's just not going to be optimized for privacy. So use Firefox. That is my recommendation. Uh, and when you set up Firefox, go into settings, and there's a, like one big privacy toggle. And I would, uh, you know, what privacy level do you generally want for this browser? And I would set it to strict. That will block all third-party cookies. It'll block fingerprinting. It will try to block tracking where it can. And the the best thing about this kind of one big button, <laughs> one big setting, is that as Firefox rolls out cool new privacy features they will automatically be included if you're in strict mode. You don't have to go find the new features and turn them on, you'll just get them for free. So it's kind of nice, just one big button. So go in there and change that to strict mode. You're also gonna to wanna to change your default search engine in Firefox. So uh, you would, I would personally recommend that you use DuckDuckGo. But there are other privacy respecting ones that you might wanna consider, Start Pages one and I forget what else they list there, but um, feel free to look at some of the other ones. Just obviously don't use Google, which is which is the default, uh, or Bing, or Yahoo, or Yandex, or any of those other ones. Uh, you want to definitely use a privacy-respecting search engine as your default search. The other thing to note here real quick is that Firefox honestly needs our support. I I am very worried that they're not going to be around if uh, we don't get more people using them. And that's really the way, the best way to support them is to use them, not just on your computers, but on your your smart devices as well. And tell others, you know, and they told two friends and they told two friends, right? I mean, spread the word and, and, and help people understand why it's important to use something besides Chrome and maybe talk them into using Firefox. The really the best way to support them is just to use their browser and to get more people to use their browser. Now, the other thing that Firefox supports, and and largely because it will not be supporting this Manifest V3 thing, is it can actually support browser plugins that will have the power to really protect your privacy. And the ones that I recommend are uBlock Origin, by far. That's my number one recommendation. Uh, And Privacy Badger, which kind of does a lot of the same things. That's from the EFF. They're both kind of tracking and privacy protecting things. And honestly, they may step on each other's toes a little bit uh, you know, so if you want to just pick one, I would probably say UBlock black origin, but I would use those. Now there has been some updates and this is going to be a change I'm going to make to my privacy checklist, which, uh, if you look right now, probably isn't there yet. I need to update that uh, checklist over the course of this week. It will be updated by Sunday, but two particular, uh, really cool extensions that I have recommended for years are actually no longer necessary. Uh, if you're using Firefox in strict privacy mode, one of them is HTTPS everywhere, uh, which was a great idea when it, came out. Uh, There were a lot of websites that didn't support HTTPS at all, uh, but some that supported both HTTPS and just regular, insecure, unencrypted HTTP. And by default, a lot of them would choose the unsecure version. And so this plugin was meant to force your browser to choose HTTPS whenever possible. Now, many years after Let's Encrypt started, uh, 90 some percent of all websites now are protected by HTTPS, uh, which is great, which basically means that we no longer need HTTPS Everywhere. So if you still have that one installed, I'd say you could disable or just remove that. The other one that I've used sometimes is uh, called Decentralized, Eyes, and it's Decentral E-Y-E-S, and it kind of claimed to be a, uh, a bundle of commonly used JavaScript libraries, all pre-downloaded for you because when you go to a website that requires one of them, it goes and gets it. And the fact that it goes and gets it, it actually could be used to log information about you. Uh, so it just kind of prefetched all those things for you. Well, if you're in strict mode in Firefox, uh, according to Mozilla, um, decentralized really isn't necessary anymore. It's got that kind of that same functionality built in. Now, conversely, I would remove any browser plugins that you don't absolutely need. And you need to really be aware of a lot of ones like, I think it's called honey, you know, some of these shopping plugins because they're helping you find coupons for stuff. Yeah, sure. I get that. But almost surely they are tracking your, uh, you know, what you're buying and selling that to other people. And, you know, who knows what kind of incentives there might be behind that. I'm sure there's kickbacks and, you know, referral links and, you know, it's, it's kind of a dirty business. So Anyway, I would certainly remove that and really any other plugins that you just don't absolutely need. All right. Next up, uh, VPNs, virtual private networks. If you really want to be pure about this, you kind of need to use it all the time now. And I and I don't. Honestly, I don't. I use it at home sometimes, but I just kind of assume that my Internet service provider is going to know some things about what I do on the Internet metadata wise, because most of my connections themselves are, are encrypted. So they may know where I go. But they don't know what I'm, you know, what I'm talking about. And I use things like encrypted uh, DNS, which I'm going to get to in a second. But anyway, uh, if you really want to, you know, shut out your ISP from knowing anything about what you're doing on the web, you need to use a VPN all the time, even when you're at home. Uh, but if nothing else, be sure to use it when you're using public Wi-Fi of any sort, whether that be at an airport, or hotel, or McDonald's, a Starbucks, uh, whatever. And It's really hard to know who to trust, to be honest. So I'm going to give you my recommendations uh, based on many things that I have read, and it comes down to really just a a handful. Um, The one I actually currently using is NordVPN. I was using ExpressVPN prior to that, but there's been kind of a scandal with their ownership, so I ditched them and went for Nord. But in recent months, I've seen several reviews uh, from places that I trust, and they've basically kind of all come back and said that Mulvad, M-U-L-L-V-A-D was the top choice or one of their top choices. So, uh, anyway, I've subscribed to Nord for like I think two years, something like that. So at some point I may switch over to Mulvad, like probably when that Nord subscription expires, uh, cause they're, they're fine. They're, they're good enough for what I need to do. But if you're new to this, or if you haven't done it yet, or if your current VPN is about to expire and you're looking for something new, uh, check out Mulvad. Now, I just mentioned the DNS thing, so I don't want to get too long-winded about this, but DNS is the internet's you know, phone book, basically. When you want to go to Amazon.com, for your computer to actually talk to an Amazon computer, they need to exchange IP addresses. And to find out where to send your message to, you need to say, okay, what IP address belongs to or is assigned to Amazon.com. And those those addresses change, right? So unlike phone numbers today, those IP addresses can change constantly. So you need someone to convert that for you. And that service is DNS to name the domain name system. Uh, And therefore, (laughs) before you go to any website, if you're doing that check first, like, okay, what's the IP address? Typically, most default DNS providers is your internet service provider. So even if they don't have access to the contents of your communication with those websites, they at least do know when you're going there because you had to ask them for that lookup. So a couple things you could do. First of all, use some other DNS provider, but you could also turn on DNS over HTTPS, um, which you can follow that alphabet soup basically means encrypted DNS. And what that should mean in theory is that even your internet service provider, even because you're going to have to go through them to go to some other DNS server anyway, even they won't be able to see what you're doing because DNS currently by default is not encrypted. So even if you're not using your internet service provider's DNS, if you're using a standard DNS from somebody else, it can still see what you're asking for. Now, these things aren't perfect. DNS over HTTPS sounds good. But in reality, uh, you can do reverse lookups. So they can still, they have to, your internet service provider still has to be able to route the packets, which means they have to see the from and the to IP addresses that you're using. So if you're not using a VPN, then they can still kind of reverse look up that IP address and say, Oh, I, I know that number, that's Amazon, and still make a note of it. So it's not perfect, but it also doesn't hurt. And that is something, if you have Firefox, you can go into the settings. You can, if you search on DNS in there, you can actually directly select, at least in Firefox, to use uh, DNS over HTTPS. Now, if you really want to do this, you want to change it for your whole computer, or you can even do it at your router, which changes it for your entire house. Uh, And if you go to Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons, and search on DNS, you can find some articles there where I tell you how to do that. All right, next up, use end-to-end encryption wherever you can. If you only use it when you're trying to be super secret, then it's going to stand out, right? And honestly, it, it should just be the default. It's not as easy as it should be, but we're we're getting there. We're slowly getting there. Now, if you, ha- if you have an iPhone uh, or an iPad or a Mac, if you're an Apple person, then you're using messages and messages by default when they're the blue bubble messages are encrypted into end. Now, of course, Apple does sort of hold the keys to that. So uh, if you want to be truly private and you want to tell Apple that they need to get get their act together and make make them truly private, use Signal instead. Signal is actually truly end-end encrypted. The Signal company has no access whatsoever to your messages. There are other services out there that are interesting. Uh, Wire is one. Session is another one that looks interesting. The problem is it's just so fragmented. You got to kind of pick one and go with it. So I've currently chosen Signal and I think it's sort of the kind of the clear standout one to go to. If you're going to try to find one where you're likely to find other people that are using it, because you're going to, have, whoever you talk to has to also be music signal. So it really helps when it's something that's a little bit more popular. All right, next, uh, social media, if you can, and I know it's, it's probably impossible, but if, if you're on the fence, if you've come close, if you think you might be able to pull this off, delete Facebook, just, just get off of Facebook. I'm on Facebook as a business only and I do it because I just know that there's just, well, there's billions of people there. Uh, and so to reach the people, to get the message out, to help educate the masses, I have got to be on Facebook. But you don't. <laughs> so if you can get off Facebook, they're just they're just bad. So if you can get off Facebook, do so. But assuming that you can't, and you probably are already on it, and you're so deep into it that you don't want to get out. Okay, I, I understand that. As a practical matter, what you really need to do then is you need to limit what data you share as much as possible. Make sure that your posts are private by default. They're not public by default. Go into the other privacy settings, crank them all the way up, meaning make them as private as possible. Limit what Facebook knows about you, limit what is shared, limit who can do things with you, like tag you or post about you, find you, limit that stuff as much as you can. If you can find the areas where you can delete some data with Facebook, do that. I seem to recall they've got settings that you can set that would have them delete data after a certain amount of time. So yeah, if you can find that setting, definitely enable that. Don't use things like Facebook Messenger. It's really bad. Now, Facebook bought WhatsApp, and it's extremely popular. It's used by a lot of people. I get that. It actually is end-to-end encrypted, but it's owned by Facebook. And I don't trust them. Signal is better. But, you know, if you're going to use something, WhatsApp is definitely better than Facebook Messenger. And by the way, remember, Facebook owns Instagram as well. If you can get off of that, do that too. Similarly, I would de-Google your life as much as you can. And as I just admitted last week, that is not easy to do, especially for somebody who is deep into their ecosystem. But it can be done, and I'm going to be doing some of it, and uh, I will re- be reporting on that. And my progress is my New Year's resolutions for 2022. In fact, what, actually, I think i will probably going to try to do a whole episode on de-Googling yourself, because there actually are a lot of great alternatives to some of the products that we use at Google. For example, Chrome browser, most popular browser on the planet. Uh, Firefox is much better. Google owns Android, and they own YouTube, and they own Waze, and they own Nest, smart devices. Those are all owned by Google, and there are great alternatives to all of them. Now, YouTube is tough because there's a lot of content on YouTube. It's kind of hard to get away from. Uh, But if you're generating content, look at things like Vimeo. And if you have a choice between using, you know, if a, if a video you want to watch is on more than one platform, just don't choose YouTube. All right, and finally, there's some other privacy products, in particular, maybe email that you might want to look at. Check out Proton Mail. They've got a nice free account. You can just play around with it, see if you like it. Uh, it's it's got great functionality. Just just sign up for an account. Just give it a shot. Try it out. See what you think. Or another one you might want to look at uh, is Tutanota. T U T A N O T A. Funny name. But it's actually derived from Latin, tuta, and nota, uh, meaning secure and message. It's based in Germany. It's got some great privacy features. Can't remember if they've got a free tier or not, but um, that's another one worth trying. I actually use both. Uh, they both got their pros and cons, but give that a shot. And then if you do decide to go to that, you might want to take the next step further and buy yourself a web domain. It's only it's like 12 bucks to start and 15 bucks a year after that. It's really cheap. at that point, these services allow you to set up your domain with them. So your provider will be Tutanota or ProtonMail or FastMail or whatever you want to do behind the scenes. Uh, And any email address that you want to come up with at your new domain at MyCoolDomain.com, you can pick any email address you want. You know, carry at MyCoolDomain.com, idiot at MyCoolDomain.com, info at, you know, whatever you can, you know. And what I usually do, honestly, when I do that is, so when I give out an email addresses for that, I've got a dummy address site. I've got a dummy web domain for my spam stuff. And I give them like, I was at Macy's the other day and they say, you know, can I have your email address so we can send you, you know, a coupon for 50% off your next purchase or something crazy. I'm like, uh, okay. And so I gave them Macy's at mycooldomain.com, which actually it's not my cool domain. It's the one I own. But, and <laughs> you know, sometimes they're going to look at you funny, like, uh, really? And you're like because you can make up anything you want. And so I'll just make up that. And that way I know that it's coming from them. I can filter that out into separate folders if I want to, and I can block it uh, at any time if I really like to. It's very powerful. All right. So those are some of my just top tips, just right off the cuff. Those are things that we could all be doing. Most of those are pretty simple. Some of them will take some, some effort, emotional effort, if nothing else, but they're doable. But I'm going to add one more thing to this. This year, I think we're reaching sort of a privacy tipping point, at least in the United States. I, I think we're getting close to our representatives taking some sort of action on protecting privacy rights. And so it's more important than ever this year that we get educated and get involved. Now, obviously I will keep you as educated as I can. Uh, if you go to my website uh, and look at the resources tab uh, or go to my privacy checklist, Both They're both probably going to contain a lot of similar things in terms of privacy, but there's a lot of great resources there uh, for other things you can learn about privacy. Uh, You might look at two book reviews I did. I think the only two book reviews I've ever done, and I recommend these books a lot, uh, are Privacy is Power and Data and Goliath. I also recommend you watch The Social Dilemma. And here's the next part. I want you to help educate other people, too have conversations, you know, when these things come up, drive the conversation to privacy. You know, when these things happen, when there's data breaches, when Facebook gets caught again, doing something they are not supposed to be doing, you know, as you're talking about this over the water cooler or over drinks or at dinner or whatever, take the conversation to the next level and talk about privacy, talk about why it's important and get yourself to the point where you understand that it's not just about me. It's about we, your privacy and my privacy are connected and together our collective privacy is its own thing with, uh, and it's a human, it's a human right. Privacy is a human, right? We act differently when we're being observed. There's a reason why we have phrases like, you know, dance, like no one is watching. There's reasons why we sing in the shower. It's not because we're hiding anything. So anyway, I, I've been on the soapbox before. I'm not going to get too much further on it now, but what I hope, is it this year that we can actually kind of rise up and at a grassroots level, start really applying pressure because I think now is the time. I think it will have the most good. So anyway, that wraps up my tips of the week and prepares us for data privacy week next week. All right, everybody. Again, you can check out my privacy checklist. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you're going to get this. uh, You're going to get a link to this uh, automatically. Uh, I will be, over the course of this week, updating that privacy checklist and my uh, Data Privacy Week uh, blog article. So look for those. If you just go to Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons and search on Privacy Checklist, it'll come right up. I want to remind everybody about my listener survey. I do this every year at this time. Uh, I really want to get your feedback. I've already gotten some great feedback. I read every single one, I promise. Uh, And hopefully this will be easy to remember. If not, you can get it in the show notes. Uh, But it's bit.ly. That's slash firewalls-survey-2022. Uh, and in all that, uh, firewalls is a capital F. So bit.ly slash firewalls-survey-2022. If you go to that link, it will bring up the form. Uh, please fill it out. And to incentivize you to do so, I'm going to be giving away some free stuff. Now, as you would expect from somebody like me, uh, this is a completely anonymous and private survey. However, if if you want to win stuff, I need to be able to contact you. So, you know, get a dummy email address or whatever if you want. But if you want to enter the contest, give me an email of some sort, some way for me to contact you to let you know that you've won. And the top prize will be a free signed copy paperback of my book. And I'm also going to send a free copy of Privacy's Power and just to completely put this over the top, I'm going to give away one of my challenge coins as well. So that is the top prize. One lucky winner will get all three of those. Now, the next four winners will get a free PDF copy of my book. So in that case, all I will need is your email address. I'll just shoot you a PDF of the book. For the top prize winner, I am going to need to have a shipping address. <laughs> so there'll be one one more thing. But obviously, I promise not to use any of this stuff for any purpose whatsoever other than to send you prizes. So again, that is running through the end of the month. Please get it in sooner rather than later so you don't forget. Now again, if all goes well, I will have two interviews back-to-back. Uh, these interviews are going to be actually occurring next, early next week. So if that goes well, then there'll be one for next Monday and for the Monday after that. And then we'll go back to the usual back-and-forth of news and interviews. I've got several other interviews in the pipeline. Now that we're past the holidays, they're finally starting to happen. And one of them I just uh, booked today is actually a a direct response to a request that somebody made in the listener survey. So these things have impact. So please, please do them. Now, I'm getting ready for a winter storm here in North Carolina, and there's a lot of other places in the United States that that are also buckling under for this. Uh, by the time you get this, we'll you will actually know the outcome of what happened. I don't yet know. So uh, I've got an article, though, for how to prepare for power outages specifically, which can come with ice storms or hurricanes or uh, sometimes really big wind storms that we can kind of see coming. And so I'll just put a plug in real quick for that. If you go to my website again and search on power outage, it'll come right up. And it's a good one to share if you know people somewhere else that might be in the path of some really big storm that might lead to power outages. So share that around. All right, everybody, that's going to do it. Thank you again for tuning in. Please subscribe if you haven't. Leave me a nice review if you think about it. And uh, stay safe, everybody out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.